G'day punters and welcome to Inside 50 this week. An absolute superstar of the VFL slash AFL, Paul Roos, a man who played 269 games for Fitzroy, 87 games for the Sydney Swans, a seven-time All-Australian, including twice as skipper in the Fitzroy team of the century and coach of the Sydney Swans and Melbourne Football Club, turning the fortunes of those two around. A very warm welcome to you, Roosie, on what's no doubt a big week. Yeah, it's a huge week, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's good to be here and discuss all things football. Now, we're going to go back a little bit. We won't talk too much about your playing days because a little bit of water's gone under the bridge uh, between now and then, and a lot of people associate you as the great coach that you've been in recent times. But I do want to talk about Fitzroy. And looking back through your Fitzroy resume, we all knew you were a superstar. But I think a lot of people, because of the recency bias, look at Fitzroy as a team that really did struggle. But in your early time at Fitzroy, it wasn't that bleak. In 83, you came third. In 84, you came fifth. In 86, you came fourth. And in 89, you came sixth. So the Lions, it was certainly a time where, despite being undermanned both on and off the field, you were very competitive. Yeah, 100%. I arrived as an under-19 player, I think in 1980, played in the grand final under-19s. It was always a strong... They had a strong... um, league that they pulled from. I mean, the, the EDJFL that I played in was Bulleen, Tem- Templestowe, um, team that I played for Beverly Hills. So it was a really strong area. Also, the country area was really good as well. You know, the Warnable area, Camperdown and, and so forth. So yeah, when I first arrived at the club and got on the scene, the list in 81, superstars, Bernie Quinlan, Gary Wilson, Mickey Conlon, Laurie Serafini, and then you had the, the sort of next generation, Matty Rendell, Scotty Clayton, those sort of guys. And then there was sort of Gary Pert, Richard Osborne, Johnny Blakey. So you're 100% right. I think a lot of people forget the really, really good players and the success or, or relative success they had in that period. And unfortunately, you just ran into a couple of these super teams in the finals, which probably stopped you from going a little bit deeper in September. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we, we got beaten in 83 by the Hawks and then Essendon, who we know were powerhouse teams and probably a little bit controversial in 83 against the Hawks. And as I think the only free kick that was ever paid that year for a deliberate out-of-bounds was against Michael Nettlefold. And then Tucky slotted one from the boundary line, so we're a little bit stiff. And then Essendon beat us the next week. And then, yeah, in 86 again, it was we beat Essendon, we beat Sydney, and then came up against Hawthorne again. So we did play against some of the superpowers of the last sort of 40, 50 years. Now, throughout the late 80s and into the early 90s, that's where things unfortunately seemed to take a downward spiral off the field. Can you remember when things started to turn from the fact that you were a bit of a battling club, but you always had a crack and always had a, the resources to at least be competitive to when you were basically fighting with one hand behind your back? Yeah, I think probably the thing that sticks out for me now, I didn't realise at the time, was a meeting we had with about seven rounds to go in 86, and it was Leon Wiergaard came to Wesley. We were training like a Sunday morning, and we had all the players there, and Leon said, look, we need a meeting, and came on the tennis court. We were, we were just sort of mucking around, and he said, look, uh, things are pretty bleak. We're going to fold. We're going to relocate. We're going to merge with a Melbourne-based club, and it was just a real shock, and all the players voted to to relocate, to try and stay together. And that was sort of the first iteration of what's going to happen, you know, Brisbane Lions, Brisbane Bears, you know. Um, I remember speaking to some of the consortiums at that time and having a chat to some of those people involved. And we won six of our last seven games to get into the finals and then had a really successful run in the finals. But as I as I look back now... Um, it probably when the club sort of started to destabilise a bit because it was probably the first time we'd ever start to talk about money and sponsorship and, and it impacted the players. At the time, again, 
we probably didn't fully realise. And then as a as a captain, I remember there were times where players would ring me and say, Rusey, I'm, I'm not getting paid. You know, I've just bought a house. Can you help me? So that, that sort of happened consistently over the next period of time until I, I left. Um, as I said, when you were there involved at the time, you in some strange way, you thought every other club was going through the same thing. So you didn't really think too much about it. But when I look back on it, that was probably the start of it. And that's when we started to really struggle. And Crawford, sounds like 10 years later, you had almost the exact same thing in 96 at Hawthorne. Well, when the clubs are struggling, it's tough, isn't it? It, uh, it really is. So when you look and think about Paul Ruse, yes, um, he was a wonderful player, but he put his hand up to go and help clubs that were really struggling. You know, obviously being at Fitzroy, they went through a tough time. Same with Hawthorne, we went through a tough time. And then I thought you'd learn from all that. Rusey, it's like, why would you put your hand up to go, no, I'll, I'll coach and try and put all the pillars in place and obviously look at Melbourne now and the work that you've done beforehand, you know, just to stabilise them a bit and look at them. They might be having premiership glory. So you must be mad. You must love a challenge. You must be crazy or you just must love football. It's funny. I reckon it's a good point, Croft. I think sometimes we, we often pick people – uh, as coaches that have only seen success. And and I've always said that's a bit of a mistake because what you and I have learned through our journey is you, you learn a lot. And I think going to Melbourne, my experience at Fitzroy clearly helped. I remember having some conversation with Nathan Jones about that very thing. I said, Jones, I know exactly what you're going through. I think at one stage in one of the seasons I played, we were 0 and 10 or something like that in the first 10 games at, mm-hmm. at Fitzroy. And because you've actually had that experience, you're able to connect with the players when that happens. I think if you haven't had that experience, it's hard to put the Nathan Jones hat on or the Max Gorn hat or the Neville, the Neville Jetta, Lyndon Dunn, James Frawley, those guys that, that I first started coaching. But when you have been through the experience, it, it really does put it into perspective. There's no question about that. Now, what, what about the Ds? This is what I do. I just totally derail any sort of... Any type of structure that Quinny has. I sense that from the first question. But, but um, so what do you do? If you're coaching Melbourne this weekend, um, and it'd be pretty amazing to be, because you did it with the Swans, um, you ended the drought and uh, it was fantastic. I was there. It was a very special day, even though I didn't go for the Swans, but always had a soft spot for the Swans. But if you're coaching Melbourne... Do you have Nathan Jones as your little sub on the side? Do you talk him out of not going back and for the birth of his twins and stay here, I'm going to put you in the side, I'll use you as our sub? Would you do that? Look, I'm unarmed when I say that. I don't know the machinations behind you know, what, how, how long ago Nathan Chunt played because obviously the VFL hasn't been playing, what sort of form, what he's training. So I'm, I'm completely saying this from the heart. So this is not this is not the head talking. Good, he's got all the information from the head and the, the match committee and so forth. But I thought there was a yeah, real opportunity when um, Joel Smith went down in the prelim final, you know, prior to the prelim final. I thought there was an opportunity to really explore and potentially they might have, Croft, you and I don't know that. But yeah, I think I think you would hope that every uh, avenue was explored to get Nathan into that team. Um, absolutely. Now, that may have been the case, it may not. But, yeah, I, I think there's certainly some value, particularly with the sub, you know, because you've now got an extra player. So, you, yeah, and that potent player might not play. Um, yeah, there's still a football component of strategic. So I'm, I'm purely saying that 
completely unarmed. You yeah. know, I don't yeah. know the conversations. I don't know the form. How long know. do you think they would have discussed it as a match committee? Quite some time they would have spent sort of... Well, you would think you would think Even so. the flow and effect from a playing point of view, yeah. what would it do to the side knowing, oh, hang on, this... This guy deserves to, to sneak Well, you can see line. the response, I guess, since his retirement. You can see the response from the Melbourne supporters. So there's clearly an emotional component to running out with Nathan Jones. So having not having him there, yeah, you've got to think that through as well because he's such a valued you know, member of the organisation and the heart and soul of that footy club that's just given so much. I mean, my three years there, I just couldn't speak highly enough of him. And he keep committing to the club and, you know, him and Max Gorn, it's it's great to see, you know, Maxie doing what he's doing. But, you know, Neville Jett is probably another one that, that's still there and there's quite there's very few that have sort of lasted the journey in that older group. So, yeah, I mean, they must have discussed it a lot because, um, you know, I would think they've gone over you know, a lot of different scenarios in order to make that decision. Just the similar theme that we were going down with the Fitzroy team of the early 90s into Hawthorne a couple of years later, and there's no room for modesty here. How hard was it for both of you to walk out on the field each weekend, clearly the best player in your team, and probably knowing you were going to cop a hiding? Well, I think, and I'll, I'll go first and give it to Croft, I think when you realise when you're out of it, and particularly when you go into coaching, that, that you do switch into selfish mode. You know, and, and it's not a conscious thing. You, because the one thing I've noticed when you're a player as opposed to a coach, there's no grey area as a coach. Like, you, you don't get that much satisfaction for losing and going, oh, well done, Ruzi, today. You made a couple of good moves. That was great. And you only got beaten by four goals. You win or you lose. But there is a sense as a player that um, – you can get something out of a loss. So the danger is when you're playing with a team that the Croft and I played with, that you do start to become selfish. And if I look back on it, I don't think I was outwardly selfish. You know, I think as captain, uh, I was always giving to my teammates. But you know, if I was really honest, you know, there's parts of a game where you go, geez, I, you know, save face here, I have to get in the best players, you know. And, you know, and you're sort of hoping you're not doing something out of the – you know, that, that's going against team rules and things like that. But there's, there has to be, a, 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 I guess, a, a selfish component, Croft, doesn't there, when you're going through those periods? Yeah, I reckon if I was coaching myself back during those days, I would have kicked my backside because, yep. yeah, absolutely, you go into survival mode. And I think that's what hurts um, sides these days when they start to struggle. It's will they put the team first in every action that they do? And... No, that doesn't happen like that, especially from sides that are struggling. So, um, yeah, you do. You do get selfish. You think, oh, okay, the best thing I can do is play well. But then, you know, trust. Do you trust teammates? And because you're changing the side all the time. No, you, you don't a lot. You have your fingers crossed. You have, you know, you have high hopes and you hope that you can be competitive. But, um, yeah, that's that's why it's funny. As the season goes on and sides start to struggle, you just know that, they're not really going to pick up. They're going to actually spiral out of control, especially when, you know, sides are losing a lot of confidence and swapping their sides over the, all the time. So, yes, I totally agree from that point of view. And from a coaching point of view, yeah, I, I would coach very different to the way that obviously I played because, um, yeah, you need everyone, you know, like a puzzle. You know, everyone's a, a little piece and you just put it together and and everyone's got to do their bit. Otherwise, you just can't win, especially mm. these days. Yeah, no, 100%. Oh, I've always said it. Not that it could ever happen, but if you could coach before you played, we'd all be better players. We might not win individual awards that we, we won, but I've got no doubt we'd all be better teammates. There's no, there's no question there's, about there's that. There's definitely something in that, you know, and I, I like the, 
the thought of that. You know, good young kids coming through. You know they're heading to the draft in a few years. Go and coach go and coach a team somewhere, you know, go and coach, not not junior level, go and coach, you know, even even a, a, a women's side who, um, you know, who really want to sort of understand the structure of, of the game. I think there's definitely something in that. I don't know where you find the time, but if you've got someone really passionate, I have no doubt that would uh, make you a better player and understand the game and understand the team aspect better. Yeah, we had, um, so my first year at um, coaching Sydney when Rocket left um, I was a defensive coach and Stewie Maxfield was injured so we made him the the defensive coach I've got no doubt mm. it com- he went on to captain the club the next year I've got no doubt it helped him dramatically because he was quite a tunnel vision player like he really good player and you might have played directly on him Croft but he was a really yeah. good player but he was very tunnel vision I, I, I couldn't believe after he'd had that 10 week period of coaching how differently he saw the game, and it really helped his his captaincy no end. Rusey, tell us about the end of the 1990 season when you nearly ended up at Collingwood. Yeah, that was pretty bizarre. I mean, I was in America um, with Tammy at the time, and I got a phone call from my manager, Damien Smith, and I picked up the phone, and he said, oh, you're sitting down. I said, oh, why? He said, well, you can take a 33% pay cut, or you can go to the club of your choice, or you can get delisted or something along those lines. I was like, oh, really? And they said, yep, yep. Damien said, yes. And I said, so what's the story? He said, well, we've spoken to Collingwood. They've they've said they've spoken to uh, Fitzroy already. They think they can do a trade. Uh, They've got a contract offer on the table. So it was almost like, like, wow, that's, yeah, okay. Um, Next suburb. Yeah, what do you you think? And they'd won the the premiership uh, in, in 1990. And I was like... Okay, well, let me think about it. I never, probably the main disappointing thing, I'd never heard from anyone from Fitzroy. So I rang Damien back. I said, all right, if that's the case, I spoke to, um, I think it was Lee Matthews rang me. Um, the president at the time might have been Ranald McDonald, I think it was, uh, remember him? He was, so anyway, two or three people from Collingwood called me. Rusey, we'd love to have you. Can and you're you, feeling good about that too. You're feeling loved when well, yeah, Collingwood because, calls. Well, yeah, 100%, because you're, you're hearing nothing from Fitzroy. And I was, I was captain of Fitzroy at the time. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh. So then... It, it went on and then Collingwood said, look, do you want to come back to Australia for you know, the, the trade period? And I said, well, look, if I'm going to change clubs, I'd, I'm going to come back. Still to that stage, I'd never heard from Fitzroy. Got back, sat there, waited at a, a restaurant in the town, waited for the trade, got the phone call from Collingwood. Collingwood said, look, we just couldn't convince any of the Collingwood players to go to Fitzroy because of the state the club was in. Still hadn't heard anyone from Fitzroy. I picked up the, the phone the next day and said, look, what, what do you want me to do? And they said, no, we're going to honor your contract. I said, look... I'm going to head back to America. They said, yeah, okay, no problems. And I flew back to America. Um, and I was just sort of disappointed in the management, more the way they handled it. Um, so I resigned as a captain at the time. Um, and then, as it turned out, administration changed. And I think I signed another three-year deal. It's, so, you know, we, we put things behind us. But, yeah, it was a, a quite a strange time. Communication lacked a lot, Um you know, back then, um, especially in my early years, which was when I look back, I'm like, wow, you know, you get to the end of the year and you get your feedback on what you need to do to be better, not necessarily during the year. Yeah. Um, so it's incredible, you know, especially when you were playing to when you obviously finished coaching, the amount of feedback and the amount of communication between players day to day with coaches and, you know, they just know exactly where they stand. There's there's no grey area. 
um, if they have any concerns or not sure about what's going on with the contract, they'll just jump on the phone. Whereas that's uh, that's quite amazing, really. When you're the captain, you're overseas and you're having no communication from from your people. Yeah, and I think it sort of coincided with yeah the the notion of being a full time footballer. So I pretty much worked up until I went to Sydney. So to be fair to yeah to your point, Croft. To be fair to the coaches and the administrators, you know, like. I was out in the road as a salesperson, whereas now... What you were know, you selling? I was actually... My first... Well, my first sales job was with Active Leisure. I was selling Deodora um, footwear and Wilson tennis rackets and Donna tennis rackets, which was... I was a really good salesman, Crawl. <laughs> and uh, lot, then I went to Lotto. Then I sold... I actually sold real estate. And then I sold faxes and photocopies. Did you... What, real estate in Melbourne somewhere? Yeah, and out which, in Mitcham. LJ Hooker Mitcham. So... I'll tell you what, if you're stuck with that, hey, it's got yeah, no, gangbusters no. all over the place. All over the place sort of thing. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, so, so this notion of communication, to be fair to... You know, just get to training. You'd work and you'd race to training. you get to training at 4.30, you get out in the track at 5. Yeah, you'd finish training and yeah, it was 7.30, 8 o'clock, so all you wanted to do was really get have a shower, jump in the car and go home. But like the mid-90s really when players arrived at the club at you know, 7.30 in the morning and they were there for the whole day. So you couldn't... I joke about it now. People say, would you coach again? I said, yeah, it's a great job, but the players turn up every day. You know? <laughs> That's the worst part of it because you've got to talk to the players all day. Whereas, yeah, when we first... Certainly when I first started, you didn't really have to talk to the coach. You know, not that you didn't want to but it just wasn't a prerequisite of being a player it was just your peers train hard coach tell you whether you're in the side out the side turn up on the weekend coach coach you you know, obviously give you direction and guidance but yeah the expectations of a coach now is dramatically different because of the time factor you know that you've got to spend with the players when you were playing um you were ahead of your time because um you know it was a real man-on-man sort of there's your opponent follow your opponent all day but you would zone space, you know, so you'd be brave enough to come off your opponent. You'd just sit yourself, not necessarily in a hole, but just in a dangerous position where you could get involved. You would run and go for it. Um, you know, it was virtually green light, go, you know, and off your, your dash out wide or, or straight down towards the other end. So wh- why did you do that? Did you just – were you always a coach even when you were playing as a – you know, in the, in your 20s and, and 30s, were you always thinking, you know, why are we not doing this? Or Because you had a bit of a basketball background. Is that true? So you obviously, you know, which is a, a great sport to, to zone off, to push up, to get in the face of opposition, to, you know, get into dangerous space and so forth. Did you just take that on yourself and say, no, I'm, I'm the captain, I'm just going to do it this way? Um, I think the basketball background helped. Yeah, I played a lot of basketball as a kid. So you're learning man-to-man, zone defences, really good spatial awareness. I mean, we see Pendles now, you know, the way he he um, handles the ball and sees time and space. So I think my greatest strength, core as a, I was a pretty good athlete. So I wasn't super quick. I was a good runner. So I could run, what did we do? 4K time trials. I could run at like a 13.45 4K. I wasn't super quick. But I think my greatest strength was was understanding where the ball was going. And I, I think I always had the view of there's only one ball. You know, so if, if, if my opponent goes there and the ball's over there, I, I think it's pretty silly to follow him just because mm-hmm. he's going there. So I think that was that was my strength, the ability to just to read the play, understand where the ball was going. And then I think equally, because I, I mean, I played on some amazing players. When we had the ball, I, I didn't want them to be stationary. I didn't want mm. them to, oh, well, now it's rest time. Yeah, you know? no, you got to get moving. Yeah, I wanted them to work, have to work the other way because my endurance was probably one of my strengths. So that was probably the other side of it. Let 
let me get on my bike, let me get to a dangerous place. If I can get the ball in hand and get it to a forward and do something with it, that's when I can get my rest. You know, Tony Lockett's having a shot for goal, Bernie Quinlan's having a shot for goal, whoever it might be. Then I can sort of jog back. Didn't work as well if you turned the ball over. No. You know, because the ball went... Very important. <laughs> went back <laughs> relatively quickly. But yeah, that was my philosophy and I think my my ability to read the play was definitely my, my greatest strength as a player. We had Jack Watts in, Quinny's good mate, um, and he was fantastic. But he, he loved you as a coach and um, he said that, um, you know, early on that he would... From a zoning point of view, he was he always thought he was a step ahead because of, he loved his basketball and played yep. a lot of basketball. And, yep, I'm going to push out here because he's going to flick it out that way. Whereas he reckons that everyone thought he looked a bit laconic mm. and, you know, is he really pushing in to put that pressure on? Whereas really he was thinking ahead of play and he said that you had a great understanding of what he was trying to do. And, um, yeah, he, he spoke very glowingly about you. Even said that uh, you went overseas <laughs> one time, and uh, you said to him, "Hey, would you look after my house?" With it might have been Angus Brayshaw. It was. And then uh, you obviously <laughs> thought, "Hang on, no, I'm not letting Jack Watts <laughs> look after my house uh, while I'm overseas for a month or so." So, uh, what anyway. were you thinking, Rosie? <laughs> I think Sammy might have knocked that on the head. So <laughs> uh, well, watch It's funny because there's some players. Well, there's a lot of players you and I played with and against and all that sort of stuff. But he was one I would have loved to have got when he first got drafted mm. because yep. I think the art of coaching is we, we all seen different personalities, you know, is is I'm a different player to you and I'm a different defender to a Danny Frawley type, you know, not better or worse, but Spud, you know, Spud Frawley, you know, yeah, Gary Perth, old school, just old school whack you, know. you in the head, yeah. get the ball out of but the I space. Think, I think <laughs> Watsy was, in my view, was probably mishandled when he. Yeah, I, I happened to be at his first game because he was I, thrown to the wolves. Well, I was he? with Georgie Stone and we were scouting. Um, we happened to be down. We must have been playing. I was coaching Sydney, so we went to the the. Um, uh, Queen's, Queen's birthday. birthday game that he was playing. We were just happened to be sitting in the grandstand. I think his parents got interviewed, and then all of a sudden he was introduced, and I thought. Gee, this is a really strange way to, you know, it's like, here's our number one draft pick. So I thought he was really mishandled. He was one player that I would love to have got, you know, at an 18-year-old and just to understand him and to, and to help him because we, you know, I think my last year was, he played some exceptional footy. I think he finished third or fourth in the best and fairest and we were really starting to see the best the best of him. But he was certainly, you know, one of the players I really enjoyed coaching over that period of time. Just on Jack, getting the best out of him, was that one of the most rewarding things as a coach that you did achieve over your glittering career? Because he was much maligned until you got your hands on him. Yeah, it was, absolutely. I think the the pride in seeing him um, get up on stage, and I think he might have made the comment, he said, look, this is the first time I've actually been up on stage on a best and fairest to collect an award. So that was pretty eye-opening when he was the number one draft pick. So to get him, yeah, and he probably won... Yeah, you know, what did we win in our last my last season? It was 10, 10 games. You know, he probably won three or four of them with critical moments, marks and goals with his with his skill. And I think part of being a coach is is finding putting people in roles they're capable of doing. Too often, Croft, I reckon some coaches, you know, talk about the weaknesses, weaknesses of the players. If we can yeah, there's an now there's an obligation for the player to do certain things, clearly, but I think what we're able to do is find Jack's role and really play to his strength and that allow him to become a really, really important member of that team in that in my final year as a coach. 
Now, final question on Fitzroy before we move on. I want to give the Lions supporters something to smile about. What was your favourite memory from Fitzroy? Maybe a favourite victory? And what's something you loved about the club? Yeah, probably the 86 final when we played against Essendon and we'd won six of our last seven games. And, yeah, the great Mickey Conlon, who was one of the best people I've ever met. Yeah, great Still icon super of the footy fit. club. Still like super machine. fit. Machine. Yeah, he Absolute looks amazing, machine. doesn't he? And he hadn't had a kick all day and we still joke about it. And, um, yeah, we got the ball back in the middle of the ground and Leon Harris kicked it to him and he kicked the goal to put us in front you know, with not long to go. And you know, the, even now watching those scenes and watching the, the Fitzroy supporters run on the field as you could in those days and the excitement of winning a final and having got to the you know, six of seven to get to the finals, that's probably one of the, the big moments of um, you know, my career at Fitzroy and really typified you know, what a great club it was for the fans and the fans loved that moment, which was, which was terrific. And after a great career at Fitzroy, at the end of the 94 season, you go to Sydney. You play 87 games for the Swans from the 95 season onwards. When you walked in the club for the first time, what can you remember the differences between the Sydney facilities and what you had at Fitzroy? Probably prior to that, I think I went to and spoke to uh, Ronnie Joseph was was the football manager, whatever the title was at the time, and he and I had spoken a lot. Then I went up to Sydney, and I hadn't spent a lot of time in Sydney, and met Richard Collis and Ronnie Ron Barassi was coaching at the time. And they put me up at the Hyatt, which had a pretty good view of <laughs> a pretty good view of the Opera House. And I'm yep. sitting in this pretty nice uh, hotel, and I'm going, "This is actually not a bad place, Corf, yeah. this Sydney." And then, you know, so went down um, and had a breakfast and met with Barass and Richard and, and Ronnie Joseph. And probably I think the biggest thing I noticed at, at Fitzroy, we were told a lot of things that never eventuated. You know, we were going to go to a new ground. We're going to have a new grandstand, new training facility, and nothing ever really happened. And I think that was because fundamentally the AFL didn't really get behind the club. I think the conversation I was having with Sydney, you could tell the AFL wanted Sydney to be successful. You know, Barassi going up there, you know, Ronnie Joseph going up there, Richard Collis as chairman. That was probably more the point. I think, because they were bottom and and Fitzroy was second bottom. So it wasn't like I went to a a good (laughs) footy club. But there was just this genuine belief that things were going to turn around, that the AFL were behind us. And that conversation transpired into the success, the facilities. So it probably wasn't as much the facilities, but I think it was just the belief they had in the AFL, belief they had in themselves. Um, getting Tony Lockett up was really huge. They had some good players up there as well. Creswell, Dunkley, um, Paul Kelly, Mark Bays, just to name a few. So I think that the belief they instilled in me that they were heading in the right direction. I just couldn't get from Fitzroy towards the end because it just it just didn't look like it was ever going to happen there. History beckons. The AFL footy finals are here. Be a part of the action with Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets like head-to-head, anytime goal kicker and total disposals all in the one bet to get bigger odds. Available during the entire final series on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab. Long may we play. Available online for tap account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help. 1-800-858-858. I, I love the Swans. I grew up um, yep. in a little country town and David Murphy, who used to play on the wing, 35, um, you know, so the, I think the whole town barracked for David Murphy because he was the only one from the town playing um, in the AFL. But So the Swans, and they were the only team that were pretty much on TV back then that but, um, you know, going up there, out of sight, out of mind, you can live your life. You're not in the 
the fishbowl here. Even now, people don't really care about AFL football in Sydney at times. I've been up there a few times during final periods or finals periods, and I'm amazed. I'm like, no one knows AFL footy's going on at the moment. So that would have been nice just to take a step back, knowing how crazy it can be here, and going up there and living a life, going around and people not even knowing you wherever you were living, which would would have been yeah, fantastic. it was, mate. It was it was interesting because when you first go up there, even doing footy clinics, I remember going up there and a lot of kids just picked up the ball and started throwing the ball, <laughs> sort of thing. So it was a bit of an eye opener prior I got there. But getting there at the stage that I was at, at thirty one, married uh, with one child, another one on the way, it, it was because it allowed you to really go to the club and do your work, and then go away from the club and just enjoy parts of Sydney, enjoy your family um, with the anonymity. And I know Pluggerin really enjoyed that as well. We spoke about that a a fair bit when we first arrived. And I I think it allowed players to sort of settle. You know, we've seen it with Buddy Franklin. We've seen it with a lot of players over the, the course of the years that have probably played in Melbourne that have gone to Sydney and have gone actually, this is pretty cool. You know, we, we're really serious when we get to the footy club, but we're also allowed to have our own space away from the football club. So it's certainly something that, that hits you. Probably the flip side, I guess, we've seen a little bit of some of those players that have gone to the less established clubs. The Suns and the Giants have gone, yep. you know, gee, I love the MCG, the taste of finals footy, you know, the, the smell of footy in the air all, you know, all the week and... I mean, I, know I didn't get them, but you got them, the drink cards going to nightclubs and <laughs> all those all those sorts of things that, you know, that, that are more typical in, in Melbourne. So I used to see a lot of Fitzroy boys out <laughs> in my first couple of years. <laughs> but, yeah, it is interesting. Probably the stage of where you're at is um, it's interesting. I mean, Lynch coming back and a few of the Suns players coming back and getting that – you know, that fierce Melbourne. So it's always a balance, isn't it? Yep. Probably what suits you rather than, you know, there's a right or wrong. In Croft's final AFL game, he played in his first grand final. And after 314 AFL games, you played in the grand final when the Swans shot up the ladder in 96 to go on and reach the grand final. How special was that year? And did you see the game really grow in Sydney as the Swans got successful? Yeah, look, I think Tony Lockett, in my view, is... Is the most significant AFL figure in the last 40 years. Yeah, because I arrived, and, and you've articulated well, Croft, is f- football in Sydney. I mean, there was the, the Edelston here, and I think he'd done a really good job, and Diesel and, um, you know, Jared Healy. I mean, you know, we played against those teams. So they were, they were great. But I think when Tony went up there, it coincided with the, the Super League war, the Rugby League AF, uh, ARL war. But suddenly he had this huge figure in a literal sense as well he was really a rugby league type figure you know an aggressive player but an absolute superstar of the game and then we got on a roll mid 96 uh, well, I remember Geelong you know Sydney at the SCG Gary Ablett senior down one end Tony Lockett down the other one there's 45,000 people there plus 10,000 at the Sydney football stadium so what Tony did I believe for the AFL and Barras coming up Barras coming up was was integral but but Tony arrived at a time where there was just a window of opportunity that existed and and we took full um you know latitude with that Rodney Eater, new new coach, really innovative. You know, some young players coming into the system, some some you know bona fide stars in Creswell Dunkley, Kelly Bays. Um, I think Kevin Dyson, Stewie Maxfield, Craig O'Brien were integral as well. So we had some other players coming up. So it was just really exciting. You know, it was exciting to see the transition 
and it was interesting because when I first arrived to Croft's Point, I would, if someone did recognise you, which was quite where, rare, you'd say, oh, where are you from? And then, oh, I'm, you know, follow Hawthorne, I've been up here for a few years, or I'm, you know, I'm from Wagga and my parents played AFL football. I remember 96, as we went through the year and we started to become more successful and people would go, oh, Ruzi, how are you? So, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm from Belmain. I, I follow the West Tigers. I've, I've started to go to the AFL football. And that would happen a lot. That would never have happened, you know, in 95. So there was just a window of opportunity that the Swans went through it and Tony had an enormous responsibility around that. So getting in a grand final was, you know, I, I signed as a 31-year-old for three years. You know, my first year was 95. I thought probably best case scenario, we might get towards the finals in my third year. So to play in a grand final in my second year was just incredible. And personally, the fact that it had been 10 years since you'd had final success, it must have been great to be in a team that was winning. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. You know, it's, it was incredible because the crowd, the excitement, the grand... You know, we played against Essendon and Plugger kicked the point after the siren. And then to know you're in a grand final and... What, what, what's that moment like? You know, because you, you watch it and it gives you goosebumps. So what's it like as a player knowing, oh, surely he's going to make the distance. Surely just kick it through. Because it never used to miss, really, from a set shot. But that was a long way out. Yeah, but also we had, I think you remember, like he had a groin injury uh, the last round of the year, missed the first final and came back for that prelim. So you're right, no, under normal circumstances, I would have been doing cartwheels when he <laughs> marked it. But but there was a little bit of nerves going, geez, he's, he hasn't played for a couple of weeks. He's got a bad groin. And then he lined up with a drop pun, I thought. Jesus, it's going to make... But then it just launched. And yep. to be honest, it didn't matter whether it was a goal or a point. I didn't even know until someone said to me later it was just a point because I could see it going through and it missed slightly. So everyone just went over to Plugger. So, you know, those moments... It's funny, you, you can gauge a moment as a player because when you look back on it, you still get nervous. You know those mm-hmm. moments where you go... Jeez, I hope he kicks this, knowing he's kicked it. <laughs> That's how big a moment they are, yep. you know, in your career. Because to get to a grand final, you know, Leo Barry's mark. Like, I, I, I watched 2005. They've had the grand final countdown. I watched 2005, 2006, and I was still on edge hoping we're going to win 06. <laughs> you know, I'm like, did that really happen, you know? But those moments are huge moments in your career because getting to a grand final, you know, I hadn't played in one for 13 years at Fitzroy. So getting to one was just enormous. The Nick Davis moment, he kicks that goal, um, you know, the SCG against Geelong. Oh, my goodness. Like, incredible. <laughs> you know, especially somehow he was able to get the ball and quickly kick it running towards goal. You know, it just must be nightmare for Geelong when they look back. But, yeah, like, like those moments are just incredible. But you talk about Tony Lockett being a real figure um, you know, from a football sense. And then Buddy Franklin, sort of in the same mould, you know, just wants to, you know, huge profile, wonderful player, but he just wants to go under the radar or hide under the mat. So it seems like Sydney want these players, come up here, we'll look after you, but they've got to be huge names because it, it gets into that rugby league sort of supporter base as well. So it seems like... Seems like they deliberately go out and and hunt for those type of players. Yeah, I mean, I think Ronnie Joseph certainly did. You know, when he went to, to Tony Lockett, there's no question because there was no bigger figure in the game. You know, and then we established ourselves, and you know, Barry Hall's another big figure, and he sort of came up, I think, at the end of 2001 or something like that. Yeah, you know, probably at that stage didn't have the presence of Franklin of or 
or um, plugger, but certainly established himself more in that period of Sydney. And then again, I think Sydney targeted uh, uh, Buddy from the marketing as well as a playing point of view. But I think by that stage, they knew the formula, that the formula really worked with the high-profile players because, you know, um, Sydney loved that type of player. And clearly you have to back it up. And we saw that with with Plugger and then Hawley established himself through that period. And Buddy's been able to back it up as well. But, yeah, I think it's a, a philosophy that's worked really, really well. And I think it also, what we worked out pretty quickly is we couldn't, we couldn't. You couldn't bottom out in Sydney. Like you couldn't strip everything back bare and go to the draft and go to the bottom of the ladder. I think we realised that pretty quickly, and we had to use other mechanisms when I was coaching to be able to get you back up the the top. And you talked about Buddy, but if you look at you know Buddy and Plugger, you look at the the success they've had. I think Darren Jolly was probably the first one. You know, pick fifteen premiership player Teddy Richards, Marty Matten, Reece Shaw. Yeah, you know, Joey Kennedy, Benny McGlynn, Shane Mumford. I mean, the list goes on yeah, yep. in that type of player that's that's really thrived in that environment as well. Just on the 96 grand final, it was a terrific grand final. The Swans started so well. Unfortunately, that North team was just a juggernaut and was too strong in the second half. What do you remember about the day? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the week was difficult because I think Dunks got reported for uh, hitting Hurdy, I think, in the prelim and then went to Supreme Court. So I remember, you know, we, we gave everything and... You're right. I think North, you can, as much as you don't like to lose, I mean, I think when you get beaten by a better team and you've given everything and you've had an amazing year, it's a little bit easier. I do remember going at half time and looking around the rooms, and I, I just remember even now thinking, geez, this team has given everything. I hope we've got a bit more to give. But North just had more to give than, than what we did. And, and as I said, we were beaten by a better team. It, it's sort of your best day, your best footy day in one day and your worst in the same day. So it's really hard to articulate because you, you're that excited about getting there and then you realise at the end of the – when the siren goes, gee, how are we going to get back here? You know, it's that's the thing that really hits you. It's a, another 12 months to get back here and winning, you know, 15 games at least and then winning two finals and then winning a grand final. That's probably the immediate thought when you lose. So it's, it's a great day and a, and a sad day all wrapped in, up into one. My brother, uh, Justin Crawford, he was, he was emergency, but uh, got to warm up. So he was out there warming up and I'm, I was deep down, I'm hoping someone falls, <laughs> falls over. over and he sneaks in. But, um, you know, so I was definitely on the bandwagon and, and um, you know, supporting the Swans during that time because it was pretty exciting. As you said, there was a few young kids floating around who um, looked like they were the future of the, the footy club. So it's a pretty special day. And the the supporters, like you see with the Demons now, obviously haven't had that success just how emotional and yeah. how invested they are. The Sydney Swans, well, you know, even then when you didn't win, you know, the you look around the MCG, oh, my goodness, look at all the Swan supporters, wherever they all come from. And then obviously, you know, fast forward to uh, the glory days, um, it was just these Swan supporters have come from nowhere. Here we're thinking, you know, you've got a small supporter base in Sydney and – they were everywhere. It was incredible to see. And that's that's what makes us all want to get out there and, and go because you can actually change people's lives, make them feel good about themselves, make them feel alive. Yeah, I think it's funny. We, you know, even when you're talking about that, Croft, we probably weren't ready to win a premiership in 96. It was, it was sort of interesting when I look. As much as I would have loved to have done it, we probably weren't as established. I think, to your point, 96 really sparked the interest, you know, from a from – a, 
a Sydney point of view, and it probably galvanised the South Melbourne people as well. To, and we probably did need a number of years then to pull everything together to, to, to garner that support in Sydney, to heal some wounds from the South Melbourne move. So 96, as, as great as it would have been, I don't think it would have been anywhere near as impactful as 2005 was, given there was a, a runway into 2005 set up by 96. And not long after you retire, you, you decide to do something very silly and get into coaching. <laughs> you took the role initially at Sydney as a caretaker role, and I think the thought was, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, you were going to be the caretaker role and then Terry Wallace was going to come in and coach Sydney, but you did such a great job, the supporters just demanded you be employed. What was it like from your point of view? Did you think you had it for a couple of weeks and then Terry would roll in, or were you thinking this was a chance to showcase your coaching ability? Yeah, well, probably went back to when I got the job, and it was a really strange week. So we 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 lost to Geelong Rocket. I think gave it away on the Monday. We had a bye weekend. We had a discussion as a match committee and CEO and Dennis Carroll, who's the chairman, about who was going to take the job. We talked about rotating it amongst the assistant coaches. Then the club asked me to do it. So the first thought was, gee, this could be the best ten weeks or the worst ten weeks. You know, this could lead into a job or this could lead into me never coaching. So my first comment to the club was, well, can I have a a job for longer than ten weeks? They said, no, we want to see how you go. Then I had to make the decision to do it. So I made the decision. So then you're immersed in the job for the ten weeks and you're not really thinking about anything else. And we sort of won six of our last um, ten games. So so did you think you could, oh, no, I'll do – a few things a bit differently? Is that what you were thinking? Not necessarily. I think it was more of a case of, and and you and I have been around footy for a long period of time, and this is absolutely nothing against Rocket because I was involved in the coaching group. He'd probably just run his race. So there was probably this yeah. opportunity for me, just this new coach coming in. To be honest, it wouldn't have mattered whether it was me or Humphrey Bear. Yeah, it would have been a case of, and again, no disrespect to Rocket, Oh, something new. So I, I did sense there was just this nice little window of didn't really matter what I did. You know, it's let's let the players play a bit. Let's let them enjoy being at the club again. And that happened really quickly. And we had the bye the following week. So we, we couldn't really change anything. Even if I did want to, I, which I didn't really, we, we couldn't really. It was just a case of let's let's enjoy the 10 weeks. Um, it was no longer about the ladder positions. I, I always say that when you take care, take caretaker coach, doesn't matter me, Ray Shaw, David Teague, you're zero zero. You're no longer four and eight as we were. You're zero zero, and that's the way the players. So it's an opportunity. So going into the last ten weeks, you just immerse yourself in it. So it probably wasn't until the last couple of weeks where this Terry Wallace thing started to come up, and and then we were winning, and then the last game was Andrew Dunkley and Paul Kelly's retirement last last game. So that was a big week going into that, and it probably wasn't until there was a choose ruse campaign in the paper. There was a lot of noise around Terry. I think Terry. Uh, gave it away from the Bulldogs and didn't coach the following week from, from memory. And then everyone said, oh, hang on, he's got a job. And, and you're only human, including me going, oh, okay, maybe Terry's got this job sort of thing. Um, and then I had to go through a board presentation with the with the club for about four or, four or five hours. And I was always assured that, no, that wasn't the case, that he that he, he didn't have the job. And look, to be honest... And and so in that meeting, do you, do you go... This is what I do. This is how I, I would do it. And I, I'm the person who should be taking this club forward. Did you, did you virtually have to sell yourself like that? Because if you want the job, you've got to say, I'm the man for the job. I can I can get this club going somewhere. 
Um, don't pick anyone else. I, I'm the person to do that. Yeah, it's funny, Croc. I wrote a book like two or three years ago, and I reached out to Anthony Carl, who was my IT guy, because I was terrible with <laughs> with computers. And Carly was fantastic. So Carly and I sat down, and yeah, I put the presentation together, as in the words. And he sat there and helped me and put the actual PowerPoint together. So I rang Carly before I was doing the book. I said, "Mate, you got still got that presentation?" So he looked through his all. He said, "Yeah, I have. I'll send it to you." Oh, cool. So it was probably the first time I'd seen it for the best part of. You know, 10, 15 years. And the last page of the presentation, I will deliver a premiership to the Sydney Swans Football Club. That was it. the last page on the, you, you on the should, presentation. You should get that out. Yeah. People would love to look at that. Yeah, well, like, it's in my book, so if you want to speak... Okay. Put your hand in your pocket unless you want a freebie. Oh, I haven't seen you. Okay. Um, yeah, all right. No, I can, I'll, I'll g- give me your address afterwards. Okay. I'll send you one. No, I, have to read it to I, know well, I know you're short on a quid to sell, <laughs> sell that house you've got in Brighton, so oh. maybe I should wait until you sell the house and then you can pay for one. But I'll send you one, I'll send you one for free before that. But, mate, That's in, all, cool, yeah. in all seriousness, it was actually really interesting to see it. Yeah. Because yeah. I did. You know, the long-winded answer your question, yeah, I had to sell a vision. I had to sell where I thought the club was at. I had to sell where the club was going. And the other slide, which was fascinating, was I the way I, I articulated the footy club of where we were at, I rated the Brisbane Lions team, who were the premiers, and I rated our team against, like literally out of 10. Yeah, right. And there was about a 10% difference, in my view, to where we were and where we needed to get to. So it was a really fa- – so, yeah, I had to spend four hours selling the vision, selling where I wanted to take the club. Yep. Um, and but thankfully- putting your head on the chopping block too. Oh, 100%, like, yeah. You know, Brendan Gale came out and said that – you know, taking charge of, of Richmond, everyone laughed at him. But like, there's not many coaches would go in and say, oh, "I will deliver a premiership to this football club." It's just not like even for a, you know a job interview. There's a lot of coaches who wouldn't have the confidence to do that. So I, that that's you know that's quite easy. If I've got someone in front of me, you know, who I know that has played the game for a long time and then has passionately you know said, "This is what's going to happen," and this is what I'm going to do. I know who I'm picking. I know who I'm getting behind, you know, especially if you've got the runs on the board, which also you had, and you had great practice for those 10 or 11 weeks that you're in charge of the Swans. Yeah, I think the I think the other thing I'm really proud of is when I go back and I went and looked at it, Crawf, I actually held myself accountable. So the things I actually presented to them were the things we established over the next three years. And, and then obviously, and John Longmire was my assistant coach at the time. So it's great that he was with me at the start and we established them collectively. And then he's been able to pick up on them and modify them and keep it going. So that was really cool to be able to see it. So I didn't sort of present it and go, oh, great, that's out the way. Now I'll go and do something completely different. I've got the job. So that was, I was really pleased when I look back on it that we were able to hold ourselves true to what we, we said we are going to do. And, and when you look at the coaches, you see Malthouse, um, you know, hand over to Buckley, and obviously that didn't work. And then you have Clarkson and the Mitchell saga that uh, was quite fascinating. Um, but because everyone says it can't be done. But if your mindset's in the right place, it can be done because it's proof. You know, Paul Ruse has handed over to John Longmire. And that has been one of the most successful transitions ever. And then you look at Paul Roos handing over to Simon Goodwin. They could be premiers on the weekend. That's a pretty that's a pretty successful handover. So you've proven that it can be done if you've got the right intentions. Yeah, I think intentions, Croft, you're right. I mean, the, the difference is, and making it clear, and this is not a criticism of Collingwood or 
or Hawthorne, the, 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 it was driven by myself and agreed to by the football manager, Andrew Ireland, and the chairman, et cetera, et cetera. And at Melbourne, it was driven by me to take the job based on the succession plan. Yeah, clearly Mick didn't want to leave and clearly, you know, um, Clarko didn't want to leave. So there's a fairly significant difference when you're looking at the succession plans that, you know, it was – it was in my best interests personally to say, no, I want to put my family first. I've had a good run at, at Sydney. John Longmire looks like he's going to be able to coach. Um, I'll let the club know next year's my next, my last season. Give them the opportunity to put John in the job. And they did, which is fantastic. Melbourne came to me. Peter Jackson said, look, we want you to do it. I said, look, I don't have the energy you know, for four, five, six, seven years or however long it take, but I, I think I can do this as long as we put someone in who's going to take over. So it's the intention, absolutely. It's the intention of the people at the footy club at, at the time and clearly you know, all, all, the, all the key stakeholders at Sydney were on board and all the key stakeholders are at, at Melbourne were on board. And as a coach, and you talk about energy, like you think about footy 24 hours a day. You're driving along thinking, oh, I might flick Jones out onto a wing and I might do this. Like, So you just never stop. So it's... Even when you're having some downtime and you're looking at the birds and you're, you're walking in amongst the trees, you're still thinking, oh, hang on, I'll put Max Gorn forward, I might do this. So you don't stop, do you? Yeah, it's funny. I, probably the most insulting things that the media ever say about you, without mentioning any names, is, you know, oh, yeah, look, Paul Ruse is talking about the team, it's us versus them. When you're in a footy club, unless you've been in it, you are, it was the minute you walk in that door, you are 100% invested. Like the moment I walked into Melbourne, I'm Melbourne. And and you're so passionate about what you do and you're so invested in what you do. You know, and and that's that's the whole point. It's you know, when you wake up in the morning, you try to give yourself some breathing space, but you're always just thinking about what you're doing and how you can get better. So this notion that the cl- players don't care or the club doesn't care or the coach doesn't care, it's just simply not true. Uh, we mightn't be playing well <laughs> or we mightn't be doing a great job, but we're as invested in, in everything. That, you know, I always talk about this. I'm more invested than the most passionate Melbourne supporter when I'm at Melbourne. Yeah, you know, I'm more invested than the most invested because my I live and breathe the game. You know, I, I, I wake up, I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I'm, I'm going to the footy club every single day and I'm invested. So I, I think the, the, the worst coach that's ever coached is still really invested in the footy club. Yeah, you know, there's no question about that. 2005, or a couple of years into your Sydney tenure, and the team continues to rise. Walk us through that finals. Crawford mentioned that stunning victory over Geelong, and then I want to talk about the prelim. Yeah, so the first week was was West Coast, ironically, and we we got beaten in a a real cliffhanger over there, which started an incredible rivalry. And then I remember going to the the next week, and you know, there was always some, some criticism hanging on us about you know, we couldn't score or we were too defensive or whatever it looked like. And I remember turning up the SCG and it was a beautiful night. And I, I remember the, the, for some reason the ground was wet and slippery. It was really bizarre. And I thought, Did oh. you do the old St Kilda and sit nah, the, the we hoses didn't, out? we didn't actually want it to be like that. It was sort of, it was quite funny. So anyway, it was a really dour game. And I, and then all of a sudden, um, um, I think in three quarters, I was like four goals to four. And then they skipped out to about a three and a half goal lead or a four goal lead. And then Nick Davis put on a clinic, an absolute clinic. It was just incredible. The best, and he reminded me of it the other day. I think Max Gorn played that really good game and 
something happened on Instagram or Twitter or one of those things and and I must have said something. He said, oh, don't forget, Rusey, my quarter of footy or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, no, you're right, Dave. Oh, yeah. yeah, you're right. I, I said the best quarter for a ruckman, not you know, yeah. not for a, let's be really clear sort of thing. So it was extraordinary. Like he, the way he kicked those goals and then to your point, Croft, you know, the, we, we could sort of see the countdown clock in the box and then the ball was on the wing. And it's sort of hard to articulate it, but Every moment that happened post that, and I don't want to sound arrogant, this is about the players. We'd practised, but the players' ability to carry that out was just unbelievable. Like Leo Barry come third man up because we needed to get it out of that stoppage. Yep. He hits it forward. I think it was Luke Ablett and then Barry Hall that flipped it back in to the front of the goal square. Then I think Ryan O'Cleave tried to get the ball out. Then there was a stoppage. And if you look at the way the stoppage was set up, it was unbelievable. Like players that were playing half back were in the goal square because they knew that if they didn't stay in the goal square, their half forward would push up into space. Adam Schneider blocks for for um, Nick Davis. And it's Nick Davis because he's the most talented player. Barry, um, Jason Ball hits it down right to the spot where Nick Davis should be and Davo kicks this freak goal so when I look back on it I give the accolades to, to everyone the ability after 120 minutes under pressure absolutely fatigued to carry out what was just an incredible play that we'd practiced over and over again was just was just exceptional so to, to be able to do that and then march to the MCG the next week and beat an incredibly talented St Kilda you know if you go back on that team I think we've forgotten how good that team was. You know, they were just exceptional. So to beat them quite convincingly and to get to a grand final was, yeah, was exceptional. And St Kilda, as you said, was a terrific team. They were a star lineup on paper. Top 2004, really good 2005. And they were winning at three-quarter time. But from there, it's just like you've got this momentum and you never look back. Yeah, I think we kicked seven goals in the last quarter. And I think that's the belief and the... If you, know, if you trust in your process and you just keep working through it over and over and over again and we just broke the game open, because yeah, whilst collective, whilst individually they were better than us, collectively we were better than them. And I think that just showed you know, the, the commitment to, I think you touched on it before earlier, Croft, that commitment to being a good teammate and doing the team role was just exceptional. The ability of our players to leave their egos in the locker and play their roles was exceptional. And we just, you know, we belted them in the last quarter, won that game convincingly and rolled into the grand final. Seven goals in the last quarter, you know, and obviously they're saying pretty defensive game plan. You can't kick goals. So that gives you a lot of confidence heading into a grand final. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, um, yeah, the fact that we were, so trusted our system and our system meant that we could kick goals when opposition broke down you know we, we would wear teams down because our system was so strong and everyone was so big on the way they played and you know we never set out to kick x amount of goals or not kick x amount of goals you know so we were happy to kick goals and I think we kicked seven in the first quarter of that game and seven in the last quarter but our ability to just you know take the opposition's best shot and then just to keep doing what we're doing was really indicative of the preliminary final, and then rolled into a grand final against the you know incredibly talented West Coast Eagles team, an incredibly talented West Coast Eagles team that had beaten you a fortnight earlier. So do you go into that game watching that back and forth to learn things, or do you just clean the slate? It's a new day. We walk in on this stunningly sunny MCG and just forget about what happened that day. Yeah, pretty much because I think both teams. 
matched up well. So, so they would have gone in confident, and we went in reasonably confident. All it really came down to, in its simplistic form, is, as it turned out, 05 and 06 were exactly this, the team that was just able to do what they did longer. You know, and that was the message we gave to the players. You know, we can definitely win. We can 100% beat the Eagles, but we're going to have to do it for 120 minutes or however long the game's gone for. And that was the message on the Friday night. That was the message before the game, quarter time, half time, three quarter time. And the irony was it played out that well, that way in 2005 as it did again in 2006. And you just had two really disciplined teams you know, going hell, hell for leather over a long period of time, not just those final series, but a long period of time. And it, and it went past 06. But we just seemed to to match up incredibly well together and and put together these incredible contests. And you had great role players like Brett Kirk, you know, yeah. he, he was he's super passionate, you know, and he's not the fastest runner, you know, but he just keeps going. You so you you must have a lot of confidence as a coach because you know their hearts all there, you know, and you know, mentally they'll be there, but their hearts right in it. So they they must be great people to coach. You know, people like Brett Kirk because passion is the number one thing I think of when I think of him. Yeah, I think the longer you've been in it, Croft, you realise what a special group when you come to when it comes together like it did. A special group, and as I said, I was watching the other night, and someone texted me about the 06 grand final, not the 05, and said, "Oh, this is an unbelievable game." So I turned it on for two and a half quarters, and that's what struck me. Yeah, you know, the just great people. And they just gave everything of themselves, you know, off off the field at training, then on the on the games, and and that's the really special part about, yeah, you know, those particular group of players, and still a lot of them are really close friends, and some of them I took to to Melbourne with me clearly as as a coach, um, you know, running into some of the players now, you you do realise how special they were, how committed they were, how passionate they were, and and how they just worked so hard for each other to to have the ultimate success. Was one all a fair scorecard from the two grand finals? I think it is. You know, when you look back on it, um, yeah, that rivalry was just incredible. You know, the, the closeness of the games, the talent level of, of both the teams, um, the matchups that we saw. You know, at times it was, you know, we put a clamp on Juddy. Other times it was Goods versus Judd, which was a bit of a risk, you know, but just seeing that transpire. Glass versus Hall, yeah, Chick, Mickey O'Loughlin. Yeah, there's just incredible matchups all over the field. And I think that's what you respect. You know, as an, you can't manufacture rivalries. I think we try to do that a bit too much these days. Um, but that was just a rivalry built out in a, incredible games, incredible amount of respect. And, and just the results of those games, the rivalries just continued, you know, for many years post 06. History beckons. The AFL footy finals are here. Be a part of the action with Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets like head-to-head, anytime goal kicker and total disposals all in the one bet to get bigger odds. Available during the entire final series on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab. Long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help. 1-800-858-858. What, what about winning the flag? Uh, you know, obviously being at Fitzroy, then going to Sydney, then putting your coach's hat on, and you knew what it what it meant, you know, being in the wilderness for so long, uh, the Sydney Swans and South Melbourne. Um, so it, it's, it's one of those pinch me moments because, you know, you've just brought so much joy 
when there's been so much heartache, you know, clubs almost disappearing um, forever, a bit like sort of Fitzroy. Thankfully, you know, the Brisbane Lions, they've somehow merged together, but it's the same with South Melbourne. So you knew the significance of it all. So what was going through your head when the siren goes? Yeah, you're right. I think we tried to not shield the place because you can't, but clearly the momentum was building, 70 70 years, 71 years, 72 years. So it was real. You know, the, the momentum was real. And I think as we went through the week, we probably still didn't realise the enormity of winning that game. You know, so you sort of rehearse as a coach what you're going to say to the players. You, you, you want to be humble if you lose and humble if you win. So you're going through your mind about what you might say, what you might do. So I think that was really good because I remember being really present when the siren went and we celebrated in the coach's box. We were, I was really fortunate. One of the great things of coaching in 05 is you didn't have to go down a lift and then through the yeah, car yeah. park out onto the ground. You actually walked through the – so I remember looking at all the Swans fans and the tears and the joy – walking on the ground, seeing past players, Barry Round, you know, Dennis Carroll, seeing people that had put money into the footy club. Bobby Skilton, was he floating Bobby around? Bobby Skilton, all those great yep. – Paul Kelly giving you the players, past players, family. And that's probably when it hits you that this is so much bigger than just that group of people that were there at the time. And then we, we won it. We go to the, the, the dinner afterwards. But then you go to Lakeside Oval uh, mm. the day after – incredible amount of people that were there. Then you go back to Sydney and we, we had a parade and I'm like, I remember getting in the car with Hawley and I'm thinking, we might be driving through the streets of Sydney <laughs> and you and I chat to each other. This could be the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened. But the crowd that just lined the street in Sydney and then we went to the town hall, Sydney town hall. So the enormity probably didn't hit me until – you know, uh, uh, days later, weeks later, and then you get letters and faxes and, you know, in those days, emails, you know, Ruzia, I'd love to, you know, thank you. You know, I took my father. My father was 78. He just wanted to watch the grandfather. And even now, the number of people that come up to me now and say, look, Ruzia, I just want to thank you. My father passed away in 2006 or 2007. My mum passed away in 2000. I really want to thank you. That meant meant so much to us. It, it, it's still, to this day, hits you at how much it meant to so many people. And I, and I don't mm. think I fully realised that going into the grand final. And there were so many supporters that were so hurt when South Melbourne left to go to Sydney. And as you said, 1996 was important in bringing them back. And 2005 was when it all became so very special. And the fact that you think about it, it was 1933 that they mm. won that premiership. But you put it that way, it's a lot of time and it's a lot of suffering. Oh, absolutely. And it was sort of so ingrained. It's funny, like I said before, like it just became in everyone's psyche. Kirky tells a really good, I think it was Kirky tells a really good story that, because it's amazing, Croft, isn't it? Like uh, in the rooms after, I can't believe how many people get in the rooms. Like I'm amazed. You walk out and you go, holy moly, how many people are in the rooms? You know, so it's great to see your, your family and friends. But Kirky tells his story about this young kid, 10 year old kid, walks up to him and goes, Brett, I've been waiting seventy-two years for this <laughs> because it's so ingrained in the in the psyche. And and you're right when you put it that way. Nineteen thirty-three. I mean, it's just an incredible. But I think the healing process started in ninety-six. And I remember the banner was sort of one, you know, one one two cities, one team sort of thing. And that that's probably everyone asks me about here. It is and why. Yeah, for those of you who've been waiting you know, 72 years for South Melbourne, so I said, here it is. And it really was a reflection of the banner because that hit me when I was up in the, I think, in the box and I saw the banner, you know, or I saw it when I walked out or whenever it was. And I 
it was really galvanising. Finally, after all the pain, because you know anyone that my age remembers, you know the the anti you know Sydney move and the, the, the demonstration at the Lakeside Oval and the pain of when their footy club. So I think that banner really typified that moment, probably more than I could could ever do it really. And in a strange way, you personally, you probably saw a lot of the pain the Fitzroy people went through as well and the Swans people went through the same. So to be able to reward that loyal fan base with a premiership, there was probably that touch of Fitzroy element as well. Well, I went to, I was working for Channel 7 in uh, 2001 and I remember going to the grand final and my great mate Alistair Lynch played in the grand final and, and I was I was a boundary rider at the time and the siren went. I remember walking out on the the ground and and again what hit me was for Lynchy because he'd been through the chronic fatigue and the amount of time and it sort of represented for all of his teammates what an important moment it was but I also remember walking to the city where I was staying in the city and so many Fitzroy supporters oh thanks Ruzi and I'm like I didn't do anything but but for them winning it as the Brisbane Lions still and I know there's some Fitzroy people who disagree with this but a lot of the people that I saw in that, and that journey from the MCG walking back to the to the hotel was really impactful to your point so there was a bit of that I, I did understand the importance of Brisbane Lions winning it for the you know but it was more significant yeah, for the for the South Melbourne people, for the Swans to win it in 2005. But there was a bit of Fitzroy about it, absolutely. 2005 was big for the Swans, but uh, winning the premiership wasn't the biggest news because a month earlier before the grand final, um, I had a meeting with George Stone at, um, at St Kilda Baths, who's obviously heavily involved with the Swans, just saying, any interest in maybe coming up to the Swans in 2006? And I said, yep, I'm out of here. I'm gone. But the problem is, them winning the grand final, I thought, nah, I've, I've missed my opportunity. You know, th- that's what I, I thought. So um, it's amazing how it all works because yeah. I could have been a Sydney player that next year and possibly a part of the grand final and my path could have been completely different. But it was so all, you're saying all the because... Ruzi, would he give up the 2005 premiership <laughs> to have signed you at the end of the season? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> but I'm just saying it's just it, it's that fine moment. If they hadn't have won... I would have been there. I would have, yep, said I, I'd love to find a way to come. So um, it's it's amazing how the football world works because you know you get one door opens, another one closes, and and I think it's you're just right. a revolving think, door, really. Yeah, hundred percent. I think you're right because it's probably a couple of things to that. Like I think when we establish or when any club establish themselves, you're looking for for links and identities that you sort of um, think have got the same values. And I think you and I are going through a similar journey. You sort of think, oh, it'd be great to, to have Shane Crawford come and, and get some sort of success. And then all of a sudden that success is sort of is, is gained and going through your mind is, oh, shit, you know, they've, they've actually done it now. What do, what do I do sort of thing? So, but I think great clubs attract great people. That's the, that's the other thing. And it's amazing when you are able to turn your club around. What I did notice is the phone starts ringing. You know, people start to say, oh, can we come to the club, you know, or this particular player, you know, wants to come. There's, there's no doubt that that transformed the, the footy club. Probably, probably 96 was the, the start of that, where players started to say, you know, where was that period where what Sydney lose like 30-something games in a row at one stage like it you know but then all of a sudden it, it turns and it really becomes a, a destination club doesn't it and and even playing against you know the, the swans you know the the connection was so strong and they all were you know they were the bloods they were so invested so that 
from a playing point of view, you're thinking, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have that here. Why can't I sort of have that feeling that these guys have all got each other's backs? You know, what about the love they've got for each other? They're picking each other off the ground. And I'm like, where's my teammates picking me off the ground? You know, <laughs> seriously. So that that has a real flow and effect. And, and players want to go, I want to be at that team. I want to be a part of that. Yeah, I think when you see it, you can you can always see it. I mean, whether it's Richmond, you know, when they went on their run, you can start to see those things, can't you? You sort of start to see, gee, they they really care for each other. Yeah, and those not so little moments, we call them little moments, but those not so little moments really start to stand out. They really trust each other, they really believe in each other. And because of that, you know, players as I said start to ring up and say, I want to be part of that. Because it's really it is really, really special special when it happens. What about coaching someone like Adam Goods? You know, like you just must. I, I suppose it's a bit like um, Alistair Clarkson coaching Sean Burgoyne. You just, you just know he's just going to fix any little area, and he's just going to do whatever he wants. A freakish player. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the his best ten weeks were in a year that he didn't win the Brownlow. I think um, I can't remember exactly what it was. And I remember in the coach's box thinking, "This, there's just not a player." in the league that can play on this guy. Like, he's six foot five. And even, as I said, watching the 2006, there was a clearance in the middle of the ground. He got he got the ball, I think, kicked it to Hawley. Hawley handled it back, kicked the goal, maybe put us within four points. But he's at, at his absolute best. You know, like, how would you like to be six foot five, you know, running on a football field, knowing you're, at, you're just better than everyone? <laughs> like, it'd be a pretty cool feeling, wouldn't it? And at his absolute best... There's just no one that could play on him. And he was able to do things. And then people also forget, I mean, he he played in the ruck. He played ruck rover. He did his knee, went to centre-half back, played centre-half back, played centre-half forward and played full forward. There's not many players in AFL history. There's probably only guys like Bernie Quinlan and Malcolm Blight that have done sort of similar things. To, I, I think Bernie won a Brownlow medal as a, as a midfielder, as did Blighty, and both went to full forward and kicked 100 goals. So there's, it's a very unique skill set that Adam Goods had, his capacity to play in all different areas of the ground. And, yeah, he was just a, a really special player and a special person. Now, after coaching Sydney, you retire from coaching. Did you think you would ever coach again, and what got you to Melbourne? No, I absolutely didn't. I, I was really enjoying my time. I was working for the Swans Academy, working in the media at the time, and and then Peter Jackson rang me and rang me, yeah, quite a few times. And there was probably a couple of things. The catalyst was I knew my time at Sydney had, had come to an end um, from an academy point of view. Um, yeah, the, the things about the pull of going home, my parents were getting older, and then Peter kept on calling, and eventually I agreed to meet with the leadership group and caught up with them and then yeah that probably sparked my interest in in coaching again um and then it all sort of happened relatively quickly to be perfectly frank and then I, I, there was a couple of things the succession plan was was big you know as I said to Peter look I think I can do what you want me to do and he didn't he certainly didn't sugarcoat anything you know he told he really told me him and Glenn Bartlett in no uncertain terms where they thought the club was at the fact that I could bring my own staff was a big thing as well you know bringing George Stone Daniel McPherson Brett Allison Ben Matthews the other one that was Dave Misson was my fitness coach at Sydney he was working at Melbourne so there's a lot of things aligned because I knew how hard it was going to be you know and, and any one of those key influences would have made it really hard I, I had a lot of time for Jade Rawlings who was the only contracted Melbourne coach and I was more than happy to have that set of eyes I'd had a couple of conversations with Jade through his interim period when he when he coached, I think it was Richmond. So 
the, the pillars were in place. I thought what Glenn Bartlett had done with the board, what Peter Jackson had done with the staff. I loved Todd Viney. Josh Marnie was a, was a really good person. So everything was in place to go in and to be able to make change. If any of those sort of things weren't there or some of the things I couldn't bring, it was always going to be probably a mountain just too hard to climb, to be honest. When you met with the leadership group, did you just want to see that they were invested or, you know, what were you hoping to get out of that? Probably honesty, Croft. I, I wanted to – we all knew – I think they'd won two games and lost 20. So we all knew where they were. I wanted to know what responsibility they took in the two wins and 20 losses and the reasons they thought as well. So I thought I thought their honesty was really good. They, they had a, a really good um, combination of, yes, this is our part in it, but also we think this is where the club let us down. And I think through that conversation, it gave me a lot more clarity around what we had to do in order to fix it. And cemented in your head, nah, I can help this group. Yeah, and I really, they're good people. Um, I really felt invested in that group from from day one. Um, yeah, that certainly helped put some personalities and, and people behind the names who I'd never really, yeah, obviously Nathan Jones I, I knew a lot of and you know, Jack Trengove, Jack Grimes are the coaches, uh, sorry, the captains, but I didn't, I'd never really spoken to them. So putting emotion and, and personalities behind names was really important. Is it safe to say that for a team that had such little success on the field, they were still a very tight and professional group off the field? Yeah, that was the sort of thing. I remember we got Bernie Vince and, and Crossy and even Misso. They probably didn't believe in themselves that much. Like they, I think they were always looking externally and, and even Crossy when he got there. And I said, what do you think, Crossy? Geez, they train hard. I said, have you told them that? Bernie, what do you think? I said, geez, they train Have you told them that? So getting external people like, like I can't speak highly enough of Crossy and, and Bernie Vince coming to the club at that time was so important to me, but we had to give them the belief. Their training habits were really good. Their on-field capabilities were horrendous. They just didn't have any clue how to play AFL football. They knew how to train for it, but they just didn't know. I mean, you were one of the great game runners of all time, Croft, and your ability to tramp. They just had no idea how to translate that to the game, you know, and got to the game and, guys, you've trained really hard. You're actually really fit. Now this is this is your platform. This is your stage. So that was that was the biggest thing, to be able to re-educate them completely around what AFL football demands. A few turning points? Um, yeah, lots of turning points. Um, I mean, your first win's obviously, you know, a really big win. We beat, we beat Carlton. Um, probably the turning points were more moments in training, moments in games early on. You know, we, we held the Swans to one goal in the second quarter. So you're looking for those marginal gains, looking for those small moments. Probably without getting too far down the track, we, we you know, slowish build. And then I think a big moment was beating Hawthorne at the MCG because Hawthorne just smashed us. You know, like we played them, I don't know, three or four times in the first couple of years, including a practice game. And I think... Um, would have been maybe around 15 in, in my last year. And we, we kicked seven goals or eight goals in the last quarter and, and, and beat them. I think that was a real turning point from a collective point of view, from a club point of view, from a, a brand point of view. But there were so many moments along the way that we, we sort of saw. Max Gorn down at Geelong when we, he played an amazing game down at, 
down at Geelong. Um, Nathan Ga- Nathan Jones' transformation over that period of time. I think that Carlton game, we, we gave him the job of running with Mark Murphy and he shut Mark Murphy down, you know, got the best player. So it changed his view of what a, what a good AFL player was. So there's so many moments through that three-year period. Uh, I know, Simon, obviously you hand over to Simon Goodwin and, um, you know, you've got to have the belief that he's going to be a good coach because you're handing over the keys and saying, there you go, away you go. And, you know, he's copped it a fair bit, um, as everyone does in the media from a coaching and a playing point of view. Um, You know, lots of question marks, but finally, you know, and, and as you said, even when you took over, it's all about those small little wins. It's not about, yes, we're here, we're going to dominate the world. It's just those small wins from a training, from a playing point of view, from winning quarters, from winning, you know, um, you know, from beating the Swans in that quarter and so forth. So what what do you think from Simon's point of view? What what makes him a, a, a good coach or developing into maybe one of the great coaches? Yeah, look, I think every coach learns at their own speed. You know, Goody, we spent two years together and I think his first two years probably took that normal tra- trajectory, even though he, they didn't make the finals the year after. I think they were it's about three points they missed by. Yeah, so they nearly made, and then they played in the grand uh, prelim final in uh, two eighteen or whenever it was. Probably the next couple of years just was when things didn't go right, and then you're learning about yourself when you get injuries to key players. You know, players can't do pre-seasons, Croft. You know, the game plan falls apart a little bit because you haven't got your best players. So I think that two-year period was a great learning period for him. You know, what what did he want to stand for? How did he want to shape his own beliefs? And then clearly coming out of a you know a down period, he was able to you know, just get those beliefs get his players fit and healthy again, train really hard, simplify the game plan potentially, and then go into this year with a lot of self-belief and a lot of self-confidence. And I think what you see with a with any team where they get to the grand final is a, is a coach and a playing group that's really close together, that, that's, that really believes in each other, that's really invested in each other. And I think that's what you see with Goody and his team now, that they want to play for him, they'll, they'll die for him. He's obviously got their back. He supports them as much as they can. As I said, the game plan's really simple. They've got, you know, really, they're really strong around the contest. They've got a really good defensive structure and they score really quickly on the back of clearances and turnovers and, and really have got a, an, an AFL premiership blueprint and he's constructed that over a, a, a relatively short period of time, which is great. On uh, their last game against the Cats where they destroyed them, uh, there was a moment in the first quarter where players are running towards... The ball uh, in Geelong when they pick it up first, but you could see the closest Melbourne uh, player looking, turning his head, pointing to kick it, push out there, don't follow me. You know, just the understanding to do that. Whereas when you see the footy, you charge at the footy, but you, they're looking around, making sure everyone was set up really well. And I'm like, oh, that is a well drilled, very well oiled machine right there, thinking about the others and teammates and positioning whilst they're going in to lay the tackle. Yeah, 100%. I think we, we yeah, everyone's acknowledged Gorn, Oliver and Petrarca, you know, even in the Brownlow medal. But to your point, Croft, Langdon and Brasher on the wing, you know, like Angus's transformation, that, that typifies a great footy club. Ed Langdon's ability, and I'm just picking out those two because they're probably the, the, mo- the obvious ones about what you're talking about, that allows Petraka and allows Oliver to go and win the ball. And they're the ones that they're, 
people are potentially looking over the shoulder. Is Ed Langdon back there? Where's Angus Brayshaw? You know, where's Lever? Is he rolling off? So that gives those that group the confidence. So they're, they're probably two that really typify Melbourne Footy Club as their wings are really disciplined, hold their ground, and they all any good team knows their role and plays their role really well. And I think they've they've done that incredibly well this year. Paul Roos, we have loved having a chat to you today. Final question from me, and then I'm sure Crawford will throw a curly one at you. The best spray you ever copped, the best spray you ever heard, and the best spray you ever delivered. Well, the best spray I ever copped was, I was again reminded by my Fitzroy teammates in a WhatsApp group uh, by David Parkin, um, and I, I, I clearly will edit some of it, but I played uh, Bulldogs Western Oval. Max Crow was 48, just kicked four on me. Um, and I'd taken a couple of speckies, Croft. So in the rooms after the game, and back in those days, anyone in the coach's eyesight, you know, you tried to hide behind the biggest player, but Parco got me and he said, as for you, Ruse, and he's gone, and the veins are popping in the neck and the head and the spit's coming out of the mouth. You took one of these, and he's got his leg going for a speck in his hand. You took one of these. He said, no, no, you took two of these, but you're nothing but a loose kick-chasing non-contact centre back. And I can show you the text message. I can show you the text message I've got from Matty Rendell and Leon Harris and Scotty Clayton on my phone. So that's probably the best the best I've ever heard. You need to text him now and say, I was ahead of the game because that's the way it's played these days. <laughs> the best I've ever he- heard, I cannot possibly repeat. Like, it's literally impossible to repeat. So I can't, I won't even go down that path because it's literally Im- impossible. <laughs> the best I've ever delivered, probably, I think the Melbourne boys reminded me that there's probably two. The one, so Lyndon Dunn, we were actually, <laughs> we were actually not far behind Port. And which is going really well. So Dunny kicks a torp up the middle of the field and they <laughs> rebound it and kick a goal and put the game out of reach. And I, I don't know what I said, but... but what was, why, was he, why was he doing that? Well, thank you, Croft. So I said something like that, probably not quite as polite. I think I said, oh, yeah, great, Dunny, well done. No, it's a beautiful torp, fantastic, magnificent. Went 80 metres up the field. The only problem was no one on our effing team knew where it was going. <laughs> <laughs> and they kicked the goal. So, yeah, in a sarcastic tone. No, well done, well done. I think the other one, I think I, I think I said to Cole Garlin one day, if I was you, I'd punch. <laughs> I think I'd punch. I can't remember the two players. I said, if I was you, I'd punch such and such and such and such in the head right now because Cole played a really good game. So they're probably the ones that stick out because the Melbourne players have, have sort of reminded me a couple of times. And, and it, so what was the Cole what? What was that? Sorry. I said to Cole, I said, if I was you, Cole, I'd punch <laughs> – I can't remember the two players, but I sit next to him. I'd punch them right in the head right now. Go on, punch him in the head. Because <laughs> Cole had done his role, played yeah, his yeah, role yeah. really well, and the other two blokes had sort of let the team down. So I said, mate, I'd punch him in the head if I was you. <laughs> did, did you have um, James Frawley? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. And he, he was great. You loved him. Yeah. But when you get the footy and you take off, you must just be going, pulling your hair out thinking, where, where are you going? What are you trying to do? You know, it was a bit like Brian Lake for a while when he was at the Bulldogs. It, they just go off for a run. You just don't know where the footy was going to end up. <laughs> well, I coached Leo Barry. I, I mean, Leo was unbelievable. The, the, the thing with Leo, and you would have played against him, Corp, he was an incredible athlete. He'd but, double back sometimes. Oh, man, he'd he go would, for a run, he'd double back. He would run <laughs> like 80 metres and travel 15. <laughs> But for some reason, it always worked out. So he was sort of, he was the, 
He was sort of a difference because it was like, so it's hard to be critical of Leo because it'd be yeah, like, yeah. What, what, George, what, Stav, what's going on? Oh, okay, no problems. That, that worked out. And you could never work out how or why or whatever, but he was probably the pioneer of that <laughs> that yeah. run. But unlike some folks you're mentioning, it always seemed to work out for Leo. Yeah, you just hold your breath thinking, where are we going? What are you trying to do? No, 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 we don't want that to happen. But uh, like we even see halfbacks now and the ones that, run and double back and change direction and it throws everyone down yeah, the field yeah. out of whack so the forwards can't get their leading patterns they go to lead they double back they're all starting to chop and change and get in the the road of each other so um yeah, and then, yeah. then the defenders blame the forwards because they weren't the right spot oh yeah and the midfielders <laughs> are pushing back and <laughs> why are you not helping the team it exactly. goes on and on we blame everyone all right we're going to finish the podcast with a one word answer yes no or maybe will paul ruse coach again no Punters, you've been listening. Hey, hang on, hang on, before we go, before we go, what about the Blues? Did they put in a call? No, no, no. No, no, I think that's a yes. No, no, I think that's a yes. No, 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 no. Was was a question asked? Why wouldn't they ask the question? Because they're looking for an experienced campaigner, someone who obviously knows what they're doing. Well, I think they know. has been there and done that. Yeah, look, without putting words in their mouth. So did they ask anyone? Did they they ask your wife maybe or ask some of your sons? Do you reckon Dad has any interest in – I reckon they've asked you, haven't they? (laughs) Not in a direct way, but in a roundabout way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which which is smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the answer was yes. Well, the answer was – Yes. Well, what was the question? (laughs) Would you coach again? I'll come back. No, No, the answer to the question is no. Yeah. What was your question? My question I was, think it's did the Blues ask up. the question? <laughs> and the, the, question, the answer is yes, they did. <laughs> yes, the question. Yes for what? Yes for no. Yeah. No for yes? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good on you. That was awesome. History beckons. The AFL footy finals are here. Be a part of the action with Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets, like head-to-head, anytime goal kicker and total disposals, all in the one bet to get bigger odds. Available during the entire final series on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab, long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help, 1-800-858-858.